Hello everyone. This week I am back to doing interviews. I talked to my friend and a former coworker, Aaron Apple, who is the coordinator of youth programs at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. I really wanted to invite somebody on to talk about environmental education. So we definitely get into the nitty gritty of this career option for wildlife biologists, ecologists, zoologists, conservation biologists, etc. But we also talk a lot about science communication and just how we should approach the public in talking about different nature, wildlife conservation issues. So even if you're not interested in this as a career path, this is a super interesting interview to talk about how we should engage people, especially people who are really absolute or established in their opinions on certain issues. So it's extremely interesting and we have a really fun conversation. Erin's a great person and it's so funny because I've talked to her girls in science program a million times. So today we got to turn the tables and I got to interview her and it was just so great. So I hope you enjoy this interview of environmental educator Erin Apple. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hi, Erin. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I am so excited to have you here today to talk about careers in environmental education. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to be where you are today? Absolutely. And that's kind of an interesting story because I work in environmental education, but I originally did not even realize this was a career. When I was in college, I kind of stumbled across it and thought, oh, wow, they pay people to do this? That's amazing. I want to do this as a, as a job. So backing up a little bit, I realized that I wanted to study something related to wildlife or natural resources. And so I went to NC State and I studied wildlife biology there. Um, I was in the fisheries, wildlife, and conservation bio program with the wildlife sciences concentration. And I graduated in 2013 with my bachelor's in that, but in 2011, I got my first internship over the summer while I was in school. And that was out on the coast. I worked at Jockey's Ridge State Park and I was a seasonal assistant park ranger out there. I'm very excited to help with things like general park maintenance duties and natural resource management activities, oyster reef restoration and things like that. But part of my job was to give educational programs. And I had never wanted to be a teacher. I was always on the path of, I wanna do something outside. I wanna do something with wildlife. But when I started teaching educational programs, I realized I can talk all day to people about topics that interest me. And so I really fell in love with it. I had some wonderful supervisory staff there who introduced me to the North Carolina Environmental Education Certification Program. And I started working on my certification finished that in 2016. So now I'm a certified environmental educator. And from there, it was several different jobs working in parks as educators until I found 
my position at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, where I'm at right now. So when you were at Jockey's Ridge, it was like, that was your epiphany. Like, I really like talking to people like this. And then you can have a career doing like the, doing this from that point on, did you, or for previously, I guess you probably thought you wanted a career in research. Is that correct? And then from that point on, you're like, no, I like talking to people about research more. Absolutely. Absolutely. I almost think of my job a little bit as a translator. I like to be the person who is keeping up to date on not just different topics in science, but like you said, current research and disseminating that in a digestible format to the general public. Environmental education is all about increasing science literacy. And that is something that I think is so critically, critically important. So it's a very fulfilling job. Say I felt a little like I was thrown in off the deep end somewhat at Jockey's Ridge because having never been at all interested in public speaking, teaching, really nervous for any of these things, I was, I ended up covering for another staff member's program called Sunset on the Ridge. And I had to go up to the top of Jockey's Ridge, big tall sand dune formation out in Nags Head, North Carolina, and meet with some folks who were up there enjoying the sunset and give a basic talk about the history of the park, the wildlife of the park and the ecology of the ecosystems in the area. And I, I anticipated maybe five to 10 people. Uh, it was a beautiful night. I got up there, again, never having done this before and ended up coming face to face with about 65 people in a huge circle around me. <laughs> and I didn't even have a chance to think about getting nervous. I just had to hop off my gator and say, hello, welcome to Jockey's Ridge and jump right into it. And it was like learning to swim by being thrown in off the deep end. And I've really been hooked ever since. Have you, have you, or did you have a chance to practice before you did that? Or was it kind of like all on the- I had seen the program given before. So okay. I knew what it was all about. And I, I had a general kind of script, but again, I was really expecting a small conversation with just a few people. And it ended up being full presentation style to a huge group. And I loved it. I didn't think that I would. I, when I was growing up, I was very shy. I never thought that I wanted to do anything in public speaking. So who knew that I would have ended up loving a career where I'm talking. You consider yourself extroverted? I do. I, I consider myself to be a little bit of a shy extrovert, if that is a thing. I'm really not very introverted. I do need my alone time, but I, I, I love talking to people. I love interacting with people. So I just push past my shyness every day and just show up. I'm, I think I'm an outgoing social introvert. So. Well, that's great. <laughs> so can you, can you tell us about your job at the museum now and what you do? And do you think this career in general, like if you are introverted, do you think you can enter this career? Is it, or is it really more for people who are just like, you know, purely outgoing and very social? That's a great question. Um, and I will, yeah, I'll answer that. I think yes, but I'll get to that in a minute. As for my day-to-day -day activities, Oh, I, I'm in a job where every day looks so very different. I'm planning educational programming, leading educational programming, and still staying connected with my natural resources background by helping out the museum in other ways, such as prescribed burning out at the Prairie Ridge Eco Station. I am certified to conduct prescribed burns, so I do help out with that a little bit, which is fun. But as for kind of explaining what I do to somebody who I meet who doesn't know what it is that my, that an environmental educator does. 
I always say, have you ever been to a zoo or an aquarium or a museum and you see somebody there with a the bird on their arm giving a talk or somebody standing in front of a big tank or in the tank at an aquarium interacting with visitors and teaching people about different things or maybe standing in an auditorium with a big slideshow behind them doing a quiz show or, or something like that. That's me. That's what I do. So working at the museum, I do get a mix of working in person and off site, of course, virtual this past year too. I've had to grow my, my Bill Nye skills, if you will, and learn how to teach it online. But a lot, a lot of my job is program development and funding seeking. I need to make sure that we're able to, you know, have grants and support to run the programs that we want to run. I do a lot of work with DEAI, diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion to broaden the scope of our programs and make sure that I'm doing outreach, not just to school groups or to people who can pay to come to our programs or get themselves to the museum, but also reach new audiences in new ways. And that's very rewarding. I also get to travel a decent amount with my job in normal times. I have, for example, taken a group of 13 teenagers to Yellowstone National Park for eight days. We lived in the park oh, and fun. moved around and just saw the whole thing in a very immersive experience. So it looks like a lot of different things. Some days are really cool and really fun. And some days are very much just sitting at a desk and writing a grant application. So, and so it sounds like you do that quite um, frequently, write grants. That's a, that's a big part of it for somebody who wants to get into this job. It is a skill that is really good to have. It really depends on what kind of institution you're working with. And I only did a little bit of grant writing when I was working for parks. When I was working for parks, I was doing a lot of education, but wearing many other hats, everything from natural resource management to park maintenance. I mean, I, I would go out and give a wonderful educational program and be the expert. And then I'd have to go and scrub a toilet. That's just what happens when you work in parks. <laughs> So I will say I do prefer my job now in that I don't have to scrub toilets anymore. Sometimes I miss being outside, but I do get to, uh, I do get to have some, my time out there, but. And, and you don't necessarily have to be extroverted for this job or oh, can right. somebody, can somebody who is like maybe shyer or not as comfortable public speaking, can they, can they become comfortable in this job and still enjoy it? Absolutely. Although I consider myself to be an extroverted person, I am shy. I never thought that I would feel comfortable in a job where I was speaking or giving presentations for a living. I never thought that I would sign up for something like that. But when you feel like you're making a difference and when you're talking to people in an informal environment, teaching them about subjects that you're passionate about and watching for example, watching their opinion on something like a misunderstood species of wildlife, like snakes or sharks, watching their opinion change from fear and revulsion to fascination and appreciation is so darn rewarding. I can do it all day. So yeah, absolutely. I also did not learn how to do this well overnight. That first program that I gave up on, on top of Jockey's Ridge that evening, I'm sure was left a lot to be desired. But you build these skills over time. I learned a lot in my certification program. By the way, that is run by a parent organization, NAAEE, the North American Association for Environmental Educators. That association is overseeing, I think, 15 to 20 different state certification programs right now and growing all the time. So no matter where you are in the states, there's probably 
some sort of interpreter, interpretive guide certification or environmental education certification that if you are interested in changing people's opinions and working to increase science literacy, but nervous about the actual speaking part, there's so many resources that are um, ever growing, ever changing to help people who are interested in this career right now. Do you think for somebody, like say somebody is going down the science route, would they need to get their master's in education? Is that a good idea for them to do? I, when I was applying for education jobs, it seemed to me that they valued educational experience more. And going through my PhD, it was always kind of presented to me like, oh, if you don't like research, like you can always do education, but mm-hmm. they're totally different things. And just because you're good at science does not mean you're good at teaching it or outreach. You know, that's true. I hear a lot of people, I work in a museum, you know, we, we see a lot of people who are pushed very hard to share their research with the public and do more and more education and outreach. And not only do they maybe enjoy it, maybe not, they may not have the time. And that's why people like me exist. It's a special skill set. You have to have the science background, but in order to understand you know, what you're talking about, you have to be sort of a broad scale expert in a little bit of a lot of different, but yes. <laughs> but yes, I think having my science background, especially because I work primarily with natural science education, meaning that I'm going and taking people on hikes through the woods. I'm working with live animals. I'm teaching people about the things I learned through my degree program in college. My bachelor's degree serves me very well for that. If I want to eventually sort of move up the ladder and get into a managerial position somewhere, say at at a museum or an aquarium or, or a zoo, something like that. Yes, I would have to probably have a master's for that. But right now, what set me apart was having that science background and completing my certification. I think that's what set me apart in the pile um, of folks who maybe have the science background or the education background, but not that real world. And that's another thing that certification program gets you the real world experience. You have to complete teaching hours for it. And you do that by volunteering. And that is so critical. That's how you build you build that ability without volunteering, without doing any and every internship that I possibly could have done. I wouldn't have gotten the experience that I needed to, to get these jobs, which can be competitive. So you mentioned in the beginning that you didn't like teaching and I, I kind of felt similar. Like I love doing outreach, but I never wanted to become a teacher or professor. Can you talk about why like teaching turned you off, but you liked outreach and maybe just like some of the differences between them. I sure can. You know, I have the most, the highest respect for formal educators, for classroom teachers. I could never do that job. I had a job right out of college, a seasonal job at a nature center where I went into a couple of different local schools for two or three days, full days, and taught a full day of genetics science classes to kids. And I have never been more exhausted at the end of those days. Those were difficult. Classroom management is something that has a whole different skill set. And I just really, I never had any desire to be a teacher. I think it's, it's a calling to be a classroom teacher. The benefit to being a formal educator is that you have the same group of students. I think you get to watch them grow, mold them, help set them on a path. Whereas informal educators, we usually only get people for a semester or, you know, a single 
program or experience. So, but for me, I love that. I love the opportunity to reach all different age groups. I love working with adults. Right now at the museum, I work with teens, but you know, I, I've taught programs where the youngest person is a baby and the oldest person is, you know, 80 or 90 or, or even older. So I love that sort of variety. And another thing I've heard many environmental educators I've talked to about this say is we're a little bit spoiled in that the people who are at our programs are there because they want to be. They chose. Yeah, I don't have to deal with folks who are in a classroom in school because they have to be there and they don't want to learn and engage with the content. So mm -hmm. I get the, the privilege of speaking with people who are really enthusiastic or on the flip side, if I get, say, funding to do an outreach program in a title one school or in an area where students, um, the students that I'm working with have not had the same opportunities to be exposed to science and, or, or live animals or just any of the things that I like to talk about that they're usually so excited that we're there to, to share a live animal or do something exciting. I get to be kind of the, the fun person who pulls them into science. And I love and you mentioned that you've changed some people's opinions and for adults, that's super hard to do. I've done some social science research and adults like are really set in their, their values. And like you talked a little bit about having fear of animals. Can you, do you, or do you have like tips for how we can change opinions? And do you have like a story about maybe like a particular person who who had a dramatic shift. Yeah. Oh, I have so many stories about people who both <laughs> had have like a specific story, but not I, I also have plenty of stories who, of people who did not have a dramatic shift who I didn't reach yeah. at all, but it's just my favorite kind of topic to talk about. I love talking to people about things that they might be afraid of. It can be mentally draining and exhausting to, to feel like you want to make a difference so much. I firmly believe that conservation is driven by an educated public. And if we don't have a general populace who appreciates wildlife, all wildlife, not just the fuzzy cuddly ones, conservation efforts are, are going to fail. So believing so strongly that what I do every day is going to influence people means that when I don't influence them, I, I have a hard time not taking it personally. But on the flip side of that, it's so great to see, you know, kids who have never touched a snake, for example. I have my little tricks, like if they're scared and they don't want to touch the animal when I'm bringing the animal around during a, a live animal program, we have our two finger touch rule. You have to reach out with just two fingers and touch the animal, such as like the back of the snake. I'll tell kids if they're hesitant, well, how about just one finger? And for some reason that works. <laughs> and then I can get them to ooh, poke at the snake a little bit and watch their faces change. Like, wow, it's not slimy. It's not scary. This is really cool. Suddenly they're bubbling with all of these questions and I love it. I do have to deal with quite a bit uh, of people who like to tell stories about snakes that they've killed or, or bad interactions with wildlife. My favorite response to that is just, Oh, wow. That makes me sad. And that usually makes people step back and say, oh, really, <laughs> you're sad that, that I killed the snake. Well, yeah, they're, they're really valuable. And let me start a conversation with you now about why that is and how fascinating they actually are. I find with adults, 
I might not get them to the point of fascination or full appreciation, but I can give good information that'll keep them from harming wildlife or putting themselves in harm's way by trying to kill venomous snakes or just having negative interactions with the, or unnecessary fear about the wildlife that's in their own backyard. And that's, yeah, that's valuable. Yeah, that's super valuable information. I'm working on my my niece. She stayed with me from Buffalo, New York. And it's actually <laughs> funny because like we were in the backyard and I was like, you have to be careful because like I, I, I'm not scared of snakes and even venomous snakes. I've been around them a lot. And I mean, of course, I'm like a healthy fear of them. I'm not going to like play with them and stuff. But I was like, oh, you should probably be aware of what a copperhead looks like. And the next morning, there's actually a dead copperhead right outside our house. We, and we didn't. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, you should come out and look to see what a copperhead looks like. So <laughs> I'm like, it's dead. <laughs> oh, I know. It's a shame because copperheads, that, that is so much that particular species comes up. You know, I firmly believe that you don't get anywhere by being condescending to people. And I do not like mm-hmm. to, to laugh at or, or make fun of people or put people down for their past interactions or beliefs about wildlife. But I do have my moments where um, kind of a running joke around educators like me is, oh, did you know that everything's a copperhead? Because <laughs> we just don't have very good, I would say, snake identification literacy in our and not even just in our area. I really think this is a national, even global problem. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a search <laughs> engine thing. Like I, yeah. I feel that way, like with, with I mean, I've, I've seen myself evolve with copperheads. Like I used to have a mm-hmm. hard time telling them the difference between them and water snakes. And now it's like, oh, I can tell it right away. You just need to develop that, that skill. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had, I had a, so many stories from parks. I had a woman who called who absolutely was insistent that in her campsite, there was a copperhead and we needed to come remove it. Well, I'm not a wildlife removal specialist. I, mm-hmm. I have opinions about, you know, there, there are certainly people who do good work and save the lives of plenty of snakes and other wildlife by moving them. And then there's some other folks who claim to be, you know, removal specialists who maybe don't follow the ethical standards that I would follow. But that aside, she was so insistent that I had to come and move this copperhead. It's definitely a copperhead. I, I need you to come and move it. And so I drove, I had a minute, I drove down to her campsite met up with them and it was i kid you not a worm snake they're about this long they're called worm snakes because they look exactly like worms and they live underground and they eat worms a butterfly is more dangerous than than a worm snake (laughs) and it just makes you think you know we have so much fear about the unknown and that's why it's so valuable to be a person who gets to change people's opinion about our wildlife to use my knowledge of the wildlife in the state not to you know my my calling is not research there's wonderful incredible wildlife research that's being done and i'm so thankful for that but i think my particular calling is to change public opinion and do conservation through outreach and education. I totally agree. I feel like that's my calling too. Like I thought it was research and then doing, I mean, I love research, but for me, I was always driven by conservation and just doing so much research. I was like, and and, I mean, even just like the changing perspectives and opinions of science of people, at least here in the United States, it's like, okay, we can have all the data in the world, but if people don't understand how science works and, or are not able to interpret the data or 
have distrust issues and the way it was mm -hmm. collected and scientists, it doesn't matter how much research we have, that it's all about, like you said, the, the education and the talking to people. I love mm -hmm. that you said about not making people feel dumb because that's mm -hmm. something that I used to do. It's like, oh, like, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't purposely do it, but it's like, oh, how do they yeah. not get that? That's like, that's so stupid of them. They're being stupid. But I, with doing more of my blogging business, I went to this one talk at an internet conference and online, it was like an online marketing conference. Mm -hmm. And I went to this wonderful talk by this woman and she's like, people don't want, or people want to feel good, smart, and capable. And it's, so that's something I try to keep in mind, but it is hard when somebody contradicts something that is, you know, the science is on your side. So my example is Black Panthers. I have this video about being, there being no Black Panthers in the US unless it's like an exotic escaped animal. And so many people are commenting, like, I'm just, I'm really starting to get some negative comments. <laughs> so how, like, can you, do you have tips for like how to talk to people like that? Like if I were to give a talk in, in North Carolina and I had to do this and there, we, mm -hmm. there are no Eastern mountain lions, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service declared them extinct. And people would be like, no, no, we saw them. We know they're here. Like how, how do you have tips for like how to talk to people? Oh, wow. That is a daily challenge. Honestly, I, Again, I don't want to ever make fun of anyone. I will say sometimes I've noticed a correlation between how absolutely sure someone is of themselves and how wrong they actually are. So there are always going to be some people who absolutely believe that what they saw was what they saw and there's no changing their mind. But I think you have to focus your time and attention on people who are just misinformed and you cannot approach someone who has not had the opportunity to learn these things and, and say that, you know, come off as condescending towards them just because of ignorance. You know, we just think about ignorance as such a bad word, but it's not, it's simply mm -hmm. a lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And you having knowledge that somebody else has does not make you better than them. We all make the best decisions that we have with the information that we know. Mm -hmm. And as long as I'm able to take what I've learned and take the science that I'm getting from researchers in this field and disseminate it to people in, in a healthy, respectful way and not, not call them out for bad behavior, not make them feel bad for, for having a fear of wildlife. Instead, teach them really cool topics in a positive way, give them fun facts, give them good information and teach them how to find a good source to go on and continue to find their own information. Those would be those would be my tips. I think it's, it's challenging. It's difficult. Not everybody who you're going to interact with is going to be polite to you, but you do get those interactions where you can change people's minds. And it's great. And even like you were saying before, like you maybe get disappointed sometimes because you don't change people's minds. Mm -hmm. Changing minds is like I said, super difficult. And you don't know, like you could be the first like seed planted and it might take 10 more conversations for them to change their mind or there's, there's so much research on cultural norms and I've even mm -hmm. see, seen it like just the past few years talking about fast fashion. Like you see a lot of fashion labels now, whether they're greenwashing or not, they're, they're talking about recycled fabrics and organic cotton and things like that. So, so, so yeah, the more we talk about these things, you might be the first quote unquote crazy person <laughs> and then hopefully it catches up. No, I know, you know, <laughs> you know, when I was first getting into this field, I had 
this desire to portray myself in a certain way. And I, I was very hesitant to bring up any sort of fears or problems that I may have had in the past or still have with wildlife. And one example to me is I still, I adore spiders. We have some of the coolest species of spiders here in North Carolina. They're fascinating. Spider web, I love them. I can appreciate them. If I touch them, it's an involuntary panic attack reaction. And I used to keep that so tightly hidden inside because I didn't, I wanted to be taken seriously by other wildlife professionals. And I didn't think that you could be taken seriously if you jump and scream around and flap your hands if you touch a spider web. So I would keep that to myself, but that's just alienating me from other folks who have perfectly natural reactions to a lot of different things that they, they may not be able to control. And yeah. so I, when I switched gears and started telling people, oh yeah, you know, yes, I'm handling this Madagascar hissing cockroach right now, but I was a little nervous to handle them for the first time. It took me some time to get used to that. Or, you know, I still don't like to touch spider webs. They're awesome. I can appreciate them. I'm not going to knock them down, but I also don't like to touch them. That just humanizes me. And that makes them feel okay mm -hmm. to share not only, wow, yeah, I have some fears and, and hesitations like that too, but also, hey, it's possible to change. It's possible to change your mind about things and, and grow and uh, come to appreciate something that you may otherwise have just had a fear of and stayed away from. I was doing field work on the eastern coast of North Carolina and I hit a spider web seriously like every four feet. Oh, I, no. would have died. No. I, don't, I don't get freaked out when I touch them but I definitely don't like touch it up like it's not pleasant experience. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the other thing with with fears about at least certain species, I mean, it's definitely an evolutionary driven fear. Like for snakes, you know, there are venomous snakes that kill us. There are not that. I, well, they kill us worldwide. Now, nowadays in the U.S., with such good medical treatment. It's extremely rare to die from a snake bite, but worldwide mm -hmm. it can happen. And, you know, there's, there's spiders as well. So the, and, and even sharks, your chances of getting better so low, but it is an evolutionary response. You know, you want to avoid getting hurt. So, so yeah, there, I, even actually one of my friends who is a professor, she loves snakes, but she can't look at them. Like they just freak her out, but she appreciates, she appreciates them ecologically and, you yeah. know, is there. I think that's the goal. I, I'd love to add to a lot of it. Yes, th there may be that that instinctual kind of basis to it, but humans currently being at the top of the of the food chain, and I just I want to view humanity as more caretakers. I'd like to think of us as being capable of thinking beyond that and protecting things that we might initially be. Ugh. And when it comes to things like snakes, yes. Some of it might be innate, but so much of it is passed down. So yeah, much of it, it is. is cultural. I, I've, I've worked in so many different facilities where I've been behind a front desk or, or out mm -hmm. on a museum floor where, you know, there's a snake in a tank and I see a tiny little toddler with their, their parent standing there pointing at the snake going, look, ew, snake, bad. And it's so hard to see because I'm like, well, that's where it starts. It's. Another thing that I like to talk about is even if you yourself as, as a teacher who's bringing your school group to me or as a parent who maybe really doesn't like, you're really afraid of sharks, you don't wanna go in the ocean. Just, it's okay for you to, to harbor whatever fears you have. It's hard to change your fears, but I do try to convince people 
to pass on appreciation rather than fear to the children in their lives, because that can, that can change things. I love that. Yeah. I grew up, my dad and I would catch frogs and snakes together and I we're in Buffalo. So there are no venomous snakes there. <laughs> I got to see them up close and yeah, I was never scared of snakes. I always thought they were super cool and, and yeah, I never thought they were slimy, I guess, cause I got to touch them from a, from a really young age. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would, I would challenge any listener who wants to, to learn a little bit more about what our cultural perception of snakes is just put in a Google search snake cartoon and see what pops up because the, the reality, the reality is so vastly different from what, what our imagery of snakes is. If you look at any sort of cartoon sketch animated snake, absolutely terrifying, huge fangs, hissing right in your face, big cobras Mm -hmm. in a very, you know, evil looking defensive posture. There's even biblical connotations that, that put Mm -hmm. negative, negative imagery on snakes that is also passed down. But yeah, when you get to know the, the wildlife that, and what they're actually like, so many people are so shocked, like, wow, not only is this animal not dangerous, but it's really kind of awesome. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's interesting to do a little Google search for cartoon snakes and just look at what pops up. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about snakes or people listening, I'll put it in the links and the link in the show note, uh, in the show notes, a link to a podcast episode. I have all about snakes and living alongside oh. snakes and even venomous snakes and to not fear them. What was I going to ask you? Oh, what, what do you think is the most difficult thing to talk about? Either like, you know, challenging to convey or difficult for I don't know, like cultural reasons or Mm -hmm. anything. Most recently, climate change. And we recently received an NSF grant to fund a pilot project that connects teens with climate scientists and gets them to be ambassadors in their local communities for climate advocacy. Not so much advocacy, that's kind of a tricky word when you're talking about federal funding, but having good information and disseminating it to Mm -hmm. the people in their communities or doing action projects to to make a difference. And I had not anticipated the, the level of very careful thought that has to be put into exactly how you speak about just another topic of research in science. That's all that climate change is. There's piles of research, there's there's suggestions, hypotheses, hypotheses for things that we can do differently, things that can be done. And it's, it would just be as, it should just be as easy for me to discuss it as any other topic in science. But when something becomes politicized, you have to tread so carefully. And I, I really hate that because mm-hmm. I wish that it was as simple as just discussing the science, teaching people about it and, and moving on that way. But yeah, it's the politicization of science that makes my job difficult. Speaking about anything that's a hot button topic, it, it used to be evolution that was very difficult to talk about. Nowadays, talking about vaccination and, and disease spread, that's another topic that becomes difficult to talk about. And I've heard of educators receiving some verbal abuse from, from folks when they try to broach these topics because it becomes so contentious. I like to think that as a science educator, I'm able to work a little bit towards increasing that science literacy and respect for the process of science and just understanding of how it works that's going to help people make good decisions, informed decisions. But it's the age of misinformation that we live in right now that makes things very challenging. 
Yeah. And if somebody does like push back on you, how, how, how should you handle that? Like, do you, do you just accept it or do you, I mean, I've always heard it's good to at least acknowledge like, like that they feel that way. Yeah. It, it goes right back to not making somebody feel stupid for having the opinion that they have. We, I don't want to ever place the blame for somebody who is misinformed on them. I want to place it on the people in power who are spreading that misinformation knowingly. Yeah. But it's challenging, you know, in a personal environment on my own, when I'm talking about these things, just because I enjoy talking about it with people who I meet or people in my life, it depends on how much energy I have, whether or not I'm really (laughs) going to get into it. Like sometimes I'll feel motivated and I'm like, here's some good sources. Let's sit down and really dig into this. And sometimes, you know, I have to protect my own mental health and step back a little bit. I used to push myself a little too hard sometimes on some of these issues. And now I am a, a little more okay with stepping back in a work environment, especially with, you know, we have volunteer educators who we train. I always say, it's not, it's not worth it to get into a screaming match with somebody. Um, and it's not professional either. So if somebody yeah. is, is being belligerent in a, a public space where I'm working as an educator, I tend to just go for the mitigation, de-escalation, yeah. change the subject route. Yeah. And I think it's important, like in the, in your personal life, one of the things that I personally have been disappointed to see is politi- when political things have happened, I've seen people being like, I'm going to defriend people who mm-hmm. think this way. Mm-hmm. And I understand that can, I understand the reasoning behind it because they feel so passionately about a subject that the way that other people feel is sometimes a violation of human rights. Mm-hmm. But the the downside of that is is that we're losing those conversations with those people. And I have people from the complete opposite end of the political spectrum as me, and we're still friends and we can still talk about this stuff. And sometimes it does get a little bit heated or excited. And then you just bring it down and be like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you know, I like we can agree on blogging or we can always <laughs> bring it back to common ground. And maybe you didn't change their mind and it might take like 10 years to change their mind. But like I said, it's like those little seeds that are planted and they at least, it's true. They at least think of things differently. And even for us, I'm like, okay, I can see where they got that from. And, right. or I could see how they were, I could see how they're using that information or something like that. Right. I think in order to have valuable conversations, you have to be willing to let go of your own air mm-hmm. of superiority because we, yeah. again, we all do the best with the knowledge that we have. Right. Yeah. You can only get so far. I definitely understand needing to distance yourself from folks who maybe are on your social media who are sharing really upsetting things on a regular basis. But it is unfortunate how algorithms are making social media an echo chamber of people who agree with you. It's unfortunate. Or it's like a hostility chamber. If you comment on someone's like, then you're (laughs) you're constantly getting the exact opposite. Like you're saying, like, like this person's always showing up at my feet at a time here. Um, So I just wanted to finish up and just, and just ask you, like, do you have any, like, like last minute or not last minute, but like some like, you know, big tips or like, what's your biggest tip for somebody who wants to go into this field? Yeah. Biggest thing. If don't go into this field, unless you are really, really passionate, 
it is not something that, you know, anybody goes into for the money. I will say that. And it's, it's something that you have to be willing to show up every day to work in a job that is sometimes thankless, but very often intrinsically rewarding. And for folks who might be in college thinking that they're, or going into college, thinking about, you know, what they want to study, what they want to do, and they're interested in informal education, or really this goes for any STEM career, absolutely volunteer or get internships and see if you like it, because that's the only way you're really going to know. Again, I did not figure out that this was something that I could make a living doing until I was in about my junior year in college and I had my first experience doing this kind of work. On the flip side, I know folks who were really sure they wanted to do a certain thing and then got a volunteer opportunity or an internship in college and realized, wow, this is not the path for me. And that's okay too. It's just better to figure that out earlier before you're, you know, you're too far into it. So absolutely pursue any and every volunteer internship opportunity that you can connect with other folks who are in this field. I know for anyone watching who wants to talk about environmental education, I'm an open book. You can feel free to reach out to me, but I'm not the only resource as well. You can check out any sort of like state certification program or NAAAE. They have, have great resources for people who are considering fields like this. So. And if people want to reach out to you, where is the best place they should go? I can provide my email address. My, I'm happy to share my, my email address with anyone who'd like to reach out to me. I can also be found on Instagram. I just started a new Instagram account while talking about careers in environmental education and, and just doing science communication on my own. And that's enviro.aaron. So find me on Instagram. Look me up. I am, like I said, an open book and I am more than happy to help people currently working with teens. A lot of my job is talking about careers in science, breaking down stereotypes, connecting people to mentors in the fields that they're interested in. So I, I have a lot of connections in that way, and I am so happy to, to share them with anyone who wants them. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. I had so much fun catching up with you, and yeah, you- it was fun talking snakes and spiders too. I know. It always seems to come back around to that. Trees are another, I'm surprised I didn't get into talking about trees or fire ecology, but yeah, it always comes down to one of those topics I'm super passionate about. So I know, I know it's, it's been fun. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye. Bye. Take care. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com.
If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.